everyone and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. Today we are doing another episode on one of my favorite things to dive into on the podcast. Walking through a passage of scripture and seeing what it has to teach us about economics. If you like this episode, and I hope you do, then after you're done with it, go back to some of the past episodes where I did the same thing with other passages. You can download episode 13 and listen to me explain Acts 2 and what it has to teach us today about caring for the poor. You can uh, listen to episode 16 and learn about how the Israelites gathering manna in the wilderness actually has a lot of implications for us today about money caring for the poor, and economics. That one is easy to remember because it was episode 16 on Exodus 16, which was not done intentionally, but it is somewhat humorous. I'll just chalk that up to God's providence. But before we jump into all that, I want to remind you all of a few things. Please subscribe to the podcast feed and turn on the notification bell so you know when a new episode drops. Please like the episode and review the podcast with five stars if you think it deserves it. That way it is more likely to come up as recommended for other people. And please follow Theana Money on Facebook, Twitter, Gab, and Instagram. And share the posts about new episodes so other people can learn about them. It means a lot when you do that, so thank you. So today we are jumping into Matthew 16 and are looking at the parable of the day laborers, also known as the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. The parable is found in Matthew chapter 20 verses 1 through 16, so let's read those verses. Matthew chapter 20 starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. Now when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they supposed that they would receive more. 
but each of them also received a denarius. Now when they received it, they were grumbling at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first, and the first last. If we are going to understand the implications that this passage has on economics, we have to first understand what its main point is and how the original readers would have understood it. Actually, reverse that order. We shouldn't be confident that we have the main point of a passage unless we first understand how the original audience, the original readers, would have understood it. Sometimes that may be about exactly the same as we understand it today. Sometimes not. How much of one or the other depends a lot on how much time you have spent studying the original context of various sections of scripture and how much interpreting the passage in its original context comes naturally to you from experience. So as I explain the passage, I will be trying to explain it as much as possible how the original audience would have understood the passage. And I hope I do that with any passage I explain in any episode of the podcast. So what does this parable mean? Jesus gives a parable of a man who owns a vineyard and at the time of harvest goes out to the square and hires day laborers, those who are hired on a day-by-day basis rather than business owners themselves or permanent employees of someone. I guess you could think of them like contractors who specialize in short-term, typically manual labor jobs, if you wanted to think about some kind of correlation to today. The owner went out to hire people to harvest his crop. He struck a contract with some men and they agreed to spend the entire day working for the man for what was a typical day's labor. So he was paying them more or less exactly what they'd expect to make. No more, no less. Then he goes out several more times throughout the day to hire more laborers for the day to work in his field as well. He appears to not have made a legally binding contract with these men, simply just telling them to go work the rest of the day and he will pay them what is right. Then at the end of the day, the owner pays them all the entire day's pay. And he pays them in reverse order of when he hired them. He was right to pay them that evening since to wait to pay them until the next day would have violated Leviticus 19.13. Those who worked the entire day thought they would get a bonus because he paid the other people what he agreed to pay them. They saw him going one by one through the other people, giving them all a full day's work when they worked more than a, sorry, giving them all a full day's pay when they didn't give a full day's work, and they did give a full day's work, so they thought they were going to get paid more. When they were upset and asked why they didn't get paid more, the owner told them that he has the right to do what he wants with his money and he paid them what he agreed to pay them in their contract. 
Jesus caps off the passage by saying that the last shall be first and the first last, which forms an inclusio with the last verse of chapter 19, which reads, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Since Jesus bookends this parable with that statement, and since the first verse of this parable starts with the word for, that statement in those two verses is important to understand what Jesus is saying here. On this passage, John Calvin writes, But Christ does not argue here either about the equality of the heavenly glory or about the future condition of the godly. He only declares that those who were first in point of time have no right to boast or to insult others, because the Lord, whenever he pleases, may call those whom he appeared for a time to disregard and may make them equal or even superior to the first. Jesus isn't making a specific point about people saved later in church history being more important than those saved earlier in church history or about those being saved later in life being more important than those saved earlier in life. Now, this passage does have implications about how the man saved at five, who lived his entire life for God's glory, and the man saved on his deathbed, who lived his last few hours to God's glory, both will be at peace with God in eternity. We don't teach that the first lived a really good life and goes to the top tier of heaven, whereas the Ladder lived a mostly bad life, so he goes to a lower tier of heaven. The LDS Church teaches tiers of heaven, although even then what I just described really wouldn't even be an accurate description of their tiers of heaven. But either way, the Bible teaches that all Christians share an eternity. And while there are more blessings on faithfully doing the work God gave you on earth, that doesn't mean there are different tiers of heaven. Our idea here is what comes from 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul talks about the works being burned up and the wood and hand stubble being destroyed by the fire. Although even if everything's destroyed by the fire, that person still has their soul. They're still saved. They still spend eternity with God. But that the gold and the silver and the precious stones survive the testing by fire and they pass through. So this parable should humble us. Those whom God calls from a young age and who work hard for the work of the gospel all their lives should not think themselves better or more important than those saved late in life. If my voice hadn't already given it away, I'm a pretty young man, so this parable should be used for me to make sure that I don't develop any sense of pride over believers old in age but young in the faith. In short, this parable teaches us that God goes out and calls us by his unconditional election whenever he chooses to call us by his good pleasure. Not whenever we were smart enough or good enough to listen to his call. God calls some of us sooner and some of us later, and who are we to answer back to God? Should the clay ask the potter why he was made like this? So be humble and don't brag that the owner hired you a bit sooner than he hired someone else because nothing you did got you hired sooner than the other guy. In fact, nothing you did got you hired at all. Calvin sums it all up a bit shorter and better than I did. 
He writes, Christ only meant to say that everyone who has been called before others ought to run with so much the greater alarcity, and next, to exhort all men to be modest, not to give themselves the preference above others, but willingly to share with them a common prize. So the main point of Jesus' parable here was not a lesson on economics and fair wages, but all of the parables in which Jesus used real-world examples are truthful in what they communicate. In modern terminology, if I was using an analogy about business, a businessman in my church would recognize that this could be a real example, not something made up with numbers that would never work in the real world. If I was using an analogy about farming, a farmer in my church would recognize that this would be a real example, not something made up with parts of the story completely contradicting how farming works in real life. Jesus' parables that involved real-world examples were factually accurate to the real world they were describing, which is not to say that this is a specific event which happened that Jesus was drawing upon. It might have happened. It might not have. Either way, Jesus was not lying when he described it in a parable. More than that, the fact that these parables were accurate to real-world details was vital since Jesus was making a point about a spiritual truth by comparing it to an earthly truth. Also, parables such as this one have to, at least to some degree, reflect the economics that Jesus recognizes as valid. Otherwise, we would expect part of the parable to be condemning the owner of the vineyard for being evil. But this parable does not do that. In fact, the owner of the vineyard represents God in the parable, so we should expect that everything he does in the parable is good. Otherwise, why would Jesus use him as the God figure in the parable? So with that in mind, Let's see what economic implications this passage might have for us. First, let's talk about income and risk. This aspect of this parable is something I had never thought of before. And in fact, had not planned to talk about leading into this episode. But doing research and everything, getting ready for this episode, I was reading Gary North's economic commentary on Matthew and I learned something about this parable from it, something I hadn't even been planning on talking about. I had a completely different thing in mind that I wanted to get to, but I decided this is some important information that I need to also explain from Gary North in this episode. So you all know how the riskier an endeavor is, typically the higher it pays. Often that is related to the cost of money. You have to pay more to get someone to do something risky, whether that be paying their wages for a job where injuries can be more numerous or paying a higher interest rate on a loan when your credit score is bad. Risk involves changes in cost or payment. In fact, just a few days before recording this episode, I was talking to a coworker about my Vanguard Mutual Fund and how the interest I made from it helped me pay for the down payment on my house. She said she had one, but it didn't pay her much. But she also mentioned that 
she had set hers up in safer investments because she doesn't like the stress of the riskier ones. And part of that is because she's older and closer to needing that money for retirement. I mentioned how her mutual fund was probably mostly invested in the bond market, where mine was mostly, I think actually even entirely, invested in the stock market. So I received higher interest payments on the money I invested in my mutual fund than she did because I told them to put it into riskier investments. I had a higher chance for more money, but also a higher chance to lose money. And that gets back to how bonds from secure institutions have a much lower interest rate than stocks because those institutions are nearly guaranteed to pay you back your money with interest where no one knows about the future of a stock. We can just guess on the market in general based on past data, and we can guess on a single company's stock in particular based on past performance, speculation into the future, and if we think that stock is undervalued, overvalued, or valued right at its true worth. So how does all this relate to this parable? The men hired at the beginning of the day had a legal contract that they would work so many hours and be paid so much money. They could have waited longer and seen if a better option came available that day, as indeed one did for the later workers hired by the same owner. But they didn't. They took the potentially lower salary job in exchange for the guarantee of having work and thus having income that day. The men hired at the various intervals throughout the day had no contract with no guaranteed pay. The owner merely told them that he would pay them what was right and they trusted him enough or were desperate for work enough that they agreed. They didn't know what they would be paid until the end of the day. They could have been ripped off. They took a much higher risk job that resulted in a better per hour rate of pay. Greater risk should result in greater pay. That's kind of the point of this implication from the parable. And I'm not trying to say that this whole thing about risk and reward is like the main point Jesus was trying to say with the parable. It's not. His main point was what I already talked about with the kingdom of heaven. But this is just an interesting implication that we can draw from the parable. Something like I said, I had never even thought of before, but Gary North mentioned in his commentary and I thought it was so interesting. I wanted to talk about it a bit and do a bit more explaining risk and the higher potential payoff due to the risk because I don't think that's a topic I've ever covered before on the podcast. So greater risk should result in greater pay. Whether that be physical risk with dangerous jobs or monetary risk with investments that could end up with a loss instead of a return. I already gave an example of financial risk with stocks versus bonds. So let me give an example of high pay for a high risk job. Now I don't remember the name of this job, so if you do remember after I describe it, comment on the episode on the podcast catcher or on the social media post or something like that to let me and others know what it is. I just know I watched a video online about this a while back. So the job. These guys have to go really far underwater and stay there for a long time. 
like I think it was a couple weeks or more at a time. And when they come back up to the surface, they have to be brought up slowly or the changes in pressure and the oxygen and nitrogen levels and all that stuff could literally kill them if they rose to the surface too quickly. It's literally one of the most dangerous jobs on the planet today. But because it probably has about one of the highest risks of dying of jobs you can get out there, it pays extremely well. The video had said something like a grand or more a day is what these guys get paid when they're underwater. I remember watching the video wishing I could take six months unpaid leave from my job and go do that one, then come back after those six months and have like a hundred grand in the bank afterwards. So I don't remember the job title or exactly what they did while they were underwater. I just thought about that video I watched on this a while back while I was planning this part of this episode. So let me know if you know what I'm talking about. Comment the name or the job title or whatever it is on the social media post for this episode since comments are one of the best things for the algorithm. Now, perhaps you are thinking that this is unfair or immoral that the owner hired those men for such a rate early in the morning, knowing he was going to hire these others later for the same pay, but less work. However, though the man in the parable represents God, that doesn't mean he was God. He probably didn't know if he was going to need more help in his field later that day. If he thought he would, he probably would have hired more people at the start of the day. He may have not even decided what he was going to pay everyone until the moment he was about to start handing out the money. Or more specifically, the moment when he told the foreman to go pay them, as the passage explains. And even if he did know he was planning to do that, he had no moral or legal demands on him to inform those people he hired first of his decisions, nor did he have a demand to pay them more because he was going to pay other people later that day the same salary for less hours. Or in other words, pay people later that day a higher hourly rate. If you work for a company, your company probably has a rule that you are not allowed to discuss your pay with other employees. Why would we expect less from a business owner 2,000 years ago? Maybe that is related to the anachronistic snobbery many people have, that people in the past were dumber than we are today, and so whatever they did was morally wrong and or did not make logical sense. And don't take offense at that last part if you were wondering the same thing I just answered a few moments ago. I'm not accusing you of anachronistic snobbery unless you are actually looking down on people in the past merely because they lived then and you live now. But if you are doing that, then I am accusing you of this. Be offended at me for it, but let that offense lead you to repent of your sin in this area and grow in sanctification. Were there people in the past that were dumb or evil and stuff like that? Sure. Were there people in the past that were a lot smarter than us? Yes, there were also a lot of people like that. Don't think we're better just because we live now and they lived then because there will be people in the future after we're all dead thinking the same thing about us. 
So that tangent aside, I want to go ahead and start wrapping up here. There is a lot more I wanted to cover in this week's episode of the podcast on this parable. Actually, I didn't even get to what I wanted to address, as in I did not even explain the main point. I picked this passage because I wanted to get to that main point. I blame Gary North because I started reading his economic commentary on Matthew and realized there was way more to this passage than I originally thought there was. Important stuff that I wanted to make sure you all got to hear about in this episode. And by the way, you can download that PDF for free off of his website if you want to read it too. You can get into some details of this passage that North explains that I skipped on the podcast episode because it appears, unless I'm reading it wrong, that he's disagreeing with John Calvin on some things with this passage. And when two theologians that I respect disagree, I want to be very slow in looking into both arguments and taking my time to decide who I am siding with. Or if I end up with a different position altogether besides the two positions that the theologians I respect are disagreeing about. So I'm pretty much already at about the normal length of these podcast episodes. And I don't want to go over time. Not again. So next week we will take another look at this passage and get even more lessons about money and finances and economics from it. And next week we will actually dive into the original thing I wanted to cover from this passage, which includes refuting how other people have twisted it to make false claims about economics. In a way, though, it's actually almost annoying that I'm breaking this up into two episodes, because now the episode with Econ Daily has to get pushed back uh, another week. But I know you all will love that episode whenever it drops. So in preparation for that episode, go follow him on Instagram. His handle is at econ underscore daily. And he's a great resource on economics and scripture. He's a brother in Christ. It will be a great episode when it drops with him. So that was this week's episode. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Satisfies me, your law is sweet.